Uh, how many of you were in the conference this week? Okay, well, it was wonderful, uh, just absolutely wonderful, wonderful teaching, wonderful materials that you can take with you that'll continue to, to boost you, uh, to, to boost your own spiritual growth, as well as being able to approach a counseling situation with someone and be clear and have a, a definite plan, have a, a good deal of understanding about how the word comes to bear on people's issues and so forth. Just absolutely wonderful. And uh, I don't know, I'm not a numbers guy, but I do like to know, it was over 100 folks there, wasn't there? Maybe 175. Oh, I was thinking like 115 or something. Okay, that's great. So if you don't know, find out about it. Uh, if you're like most of us, it takes a while to get plugged in at work and get off time approved to be somewhere on a weekend for three consecutive months, just one weekend a month. Uh, but, but you won't be sorry because you'll be literally bombarded. Uh, we, all, we used the phrase talking about feeding them with a fire hose, bombarded with the, with the Word of God, and it's a, it's a wonderful experience. So that's what's been going on. Uh, the last time I was a, a fill-in for Joel was back in June and July. I think he was on vacation or whatever, and I stepped in for three classes, and he and I discussed at that time that, so he could just call on me, kind of spur of the moment, like he did this week, that I would take something that I had been doing and had prepared and was used to teaching and could just come in and share. So what we did then, we started uh, looking at some material from Brian Hedge's book about killing sin, mortification of sin. It's called License to Kill. And what it is, is about just that, which we'll look at Romans eight thirteen in a moment, our focal passage. But we started looking at all that's involved about the nature of sin, what the Bible says about the mortification of sin, putting it to death. From that book, I had prepared a 10-part uh, par, uh, lesson, which I use over at the ministry house in his steps with the guys over there. And um, each time I have an opportunity to take that, I pull it and go through it again and share it, morph it a little bit, which is what I've uh, done for you all this morning. But in keeping with that, we'll, we'll kind of be around chapter 4, if you're familiar with that book, a chapter that deals with murderous intent. And it's talking about the issue of, of sin, what it does in our life, the nature of it, uh, what the Word of God tells us about how we can recognize the wiles of the devil and so forth. A lot of times when uh, I start in on this kind of thing, this kind of message, teaching, uh, and I've said this before because I've experienced it to be true, you know, it's like the demon swarm. And that's always, um, that's a good thing because you want to be talking about something and sharing something that's really going to the meat of a person. may get to a position in our life where we don't want to hear about sin anymore. We hear about it too much. Or we may have just gotten comfortable in the worship, comfortable even in the service, the service of God in the ministry and so forth. When the Bible teaches us, we ought to be aware. Peter would use the words translated sober. Be sober-minded about what's going on around you. And we'll see, the Apostle Paul refers to what's going on around you as a believer in the spiritual world as a war. It's an absolute war. 
And you might say, well, I can't, you know, I can't take that day in and day out. I don't want to get up in the morning feeling like I'm in warfare. And I can only suggest to you, you better. You better when your feet hit the floor. But it's not that you're without an arsenal. It's not that you're without help, that you're without assistance. And I mean, I mean a help that's going to vanquish the enemy, if you know where to go. If you're able to employ faith in the Word of God and trust God, because it does not mean that you won't have difficulty. It does not mean that there won't be a trial. In fact, it almost ensures it. It absolutely ensures it. But we as Christians want to go there. We want to go where the rubber meets the road. We want to go where the work needs to be done, not only in our life, but as God uses us in the life of other people. So that's what we're going to continue with. And uh, we want to take, of course, a moment to God to uh, strengthen us this morning and to make his word clear. And uh, I assure you that he's the one who can do that, not me. Let's pray together. Well, with that, I want to take just a moment and go back and just mention a couple of the highlights about what we had looked at in those three lessons way back yonder in the summer. And uh, for those of you who are probably new in, uh, in Joel's class, it, uh, it kind of served to, to build you up to where we are right now. But we began looking at this issue of the mortification of sin, that is putting sin to death in the life of the believer. You understand it's not something that happens like that. We're not talking about justification. We're not talking about what Christ has done for us and what's happened with our acceptance, with our new birth, with the fact that we now possess the Holy Spirit of God because of that new birth. We're not talking about what Christ has accomplished initially regarding our We're actually talking about sanctification. We're talking about moving forward in our life. We're talking about living a life that's totally, and I mean totally, sold out to the cause and purpose of Christ. That's what we're living there. It's not popular today to be a fanatic over the things of God. It's not. It runs cross-grain against what this world expects. It expects what? Tolerance. First thing you can do is be intolerant. I was sharing yesterday in one of our classes, listening to a lady on TV going back and forth, back and forth, bannering over a political issue, a moral political issue, and she she would ultimately say to the person, "Well, all you now you just have to respect that. You just have to respect it," as if to say the worst thing you can do with someone that you disagree with is to not respect their opinion. Uh, We allow people to talk, do we not? But when people talk foolishness to us, when they talk sin to us, we're obligated to do what? And it is our joy to do what? To speak the truth. Somebody said call them out. (laughs) That's right. There's ways to do that, isn't there? We do it in love because we do love. Paul says to us in the 8th chapter of Romans, if we want to stand on a, a focal passage, we'll look at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if 
by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I love these simple, uh, succinct, yet powerful, powerful statements in the Word of God. They, they fit better in my brain. They help me to remember. And when Paul comes to deal with a multitude of issues about indwelling sin and the sin principle living within us, he uses a lot of these succinct statements, and I think they help us to live. But this is where you begin to see in some translations where it talks about putting sin to death, you begin to see this word mortify, the mortification of sins kind of change. You know how words change over the years. Today, if we talk about mortification, I was mortified. What are we talking about? We're certainly not talking about putting sin to death. We're talking about being shocked or maybe even embarrassed. I was mortified at what my child did. I've been there, you know. So uh, that's what that's what we're talking about in this context, though. Putting it, putting it to death. We began by talking about a number of issues. We defined mortification, just what we just did. And we learned that it's about indwelling sin. It's not about, initially, it's not about the physical body. The emphasis is not on, per se, the things that we do and say that are, that are sinful. It goes deeper than that, right? It goes to the fact that there is a sin principle living and dwelling within every person. Okay, because we are, who's our father in the earth? Who's our father? God's our spiritual father. Who's our earthly father? Adam. We have Adam's sin, do we not? David said, I was shapen in iniquity. Talking about in his mother's womb, he was shapen in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about his mother committed a sinful act when he was conceived. That's not the context. He was shapen in iniquity. Iniquity was, was born within him when he was born. And that is our case. And that particularly is our problem. And that's the root of what we're looking at when we're talking about putting sin to death in the life of a believer. That's important to get straight. And that's why I go back and visit this just a moment. Because if we just, it's like, it's like dealing with the symptoms of an illness rather than the cause of an illness. If we don't get those two straight, we began just focusing on our behavior, which on a perfect standard will never change. We will never be perfect, that is to say, with our words, with our thoughts, with our actions. We'll never get there. But it remains that we have faith in what has been done for us through Christ. So I've called it justification. We have faith in that and we have faith in what he has provided for us in this life, in this life. And he's provided quite an arsenal for us. So we also know that mortification, this putting sin to death, is for believers. It's not for unbelievers. Now I say it's not for unbelievers. It's available, but you can't lock into it unless you know Christ. You can't lock into it unless you've been born again, unless your sins are forgiven. You can listen to it. You can be to, to get a feel about its demands upon your life, what it's going to require, and that's a good thing. That's how the Holy Spirit works part of a person who hasn't come to Christ, to show them the error of their way, to show them how different and how unacceptable their life <laughs> is apart from the Spirit of God in their life. That's what must happen, however it happens. 
But rest assured, it's for believers. Only believers can lock into putting sin to death. And that's all about what Christ has done and what Christ has performed for us. It's also about progressive holiness, not sinlessness. I throw this in there because I know when I'm sharing on Tuesday nights and his steps, I almost always get that question. As we begin to talk about where we are uh, without Christ, uh, what God requires, we began to see him as perfect, sovereign, holy, almighty God. This is what he requires of us in our life. People automatically step back, particularly if they're dealing with life-dominating sins. They step back and say, I can't, I can't go there. There's, there's got to be another way. There's got to be a way that's a little more palatable for me. I can't deal with all this right off. We let them know, look, we come in faith. Faith transforms us. And then God begins to work His work. And He even gives us a promise, that which I've begun in you, I will accomplish. We begin to latch on to what He's done. That requires faith. But rest assured, it is a progression that doesn't happen overnight. We talk about the dangers of sin because people toy with sin. They toy with sin. That's uh, prevalent in all, virtually all. I don't have to say virtually anymore. It's prevalent in all the media that you and I experience in life today. It is literally poured into us. You know, we always go back in the Bible and we look at Corinth and we talk about it being a port city and all this and how all the people came in there. People came from everywhere. And all this, this pagan society came in and dropped off goods and this pagan society over here and then they married the people there and it all just became a big hodgepodge mess, okay? And you say, well, we're not a port city. No, but we have it imported in at a huge rate. We have to be careful with that. So we talk about and talked about earlier last summer the dangers of sin. Every time... Every time I do this, somebody always comes up later and says, I'm so glad you said that, or I'm so glad we covered that this morning, because I can see an area in my life where sin is trying to come in and grab me by the toe, and then grab me by the foot, you know, the old toehold and foothold, and then eventually have a stronghold in my life. And it's the Word of God that exposes what evil is doing. And in the heart of a person who wants to mortify, put to death the elements of sin in their life, this is critical. It's absolutely critical. We can't toy around with sin. We can't. We can't see how close we can get to the fire without being burned. We can't do that. It's foolish. And yet we do do it, sometimes passively. We accept things in life. Oh, this is not going to hurt. Well, everybody knows about it. Well, everybody. No. Draw a line in the sand. Stand upon the Word of God. By all means, call sin what it is. Call it what it is. The Reformers, and in particular, you know, Jonathan Edwards and his teaching, he coined the phrase this holy violence. Holy violence against sin. You'll see that in a lot of his writings, and it was picked up here. And I actually don't know who came first, but in reading a lot about him, I see that here and there from time to time. And it connotes the exact kind of attitude that we are to have. It has not changed. 
I'm sure as he looked at the Word of God and the demand of God's Word upon his life, you know, he sat down and came up with, you know, 70 resolutions. You've probably heard of those. Jonathan Edwards did. 70 resolutions that he would look at every single day. Every single day. And then in a more extensive way, at the end of every single week for the purpose of examining his own life, doing exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, examine your life, see whether you be in the faith, see what's coming against you if you're a Christian, see if you're acting as Christ would act. He did that. A holy, a holy violence against sin. And then he talked about the law, we talked about the law of indwelling sin, and I covered that a bit up front, so for the sake of time I'll move on, just know that it's there as a principle. Sin is present, but it does not have authority in the life of the believer. Why would we even note that? Because you start reading in the Word of God about, you know, mortification, or you read uh, about not letting sin life, as Paul says, don't let it have dominion over you. And it begs the question, wait a minute, if, if God has done all this for me, why do I have to keep up this defense? Why do I have to constantly stay aware of this? Why do I have to adopt an attitude of holy violence? Why do I have to do that? Because the flesh remains in the life of a believer. The flesh remains. I wait. I was, I was so thrilled week when the preacher didn't preach on, on Romans because I'm, I'm waiting for him to get up to Romans chapter 7 verse 14 where Paul talks about his battle with sin. You're with the verses, verse 14 there in chapter 7 all the way through to the end. The good that I would do, I do not do. I, find, I wind up doing the things that I don't want to do. Uh, so on and so on. I've gotten so much comfort. Have, have you not? Have you not gotten comfort out of the fact that arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived struggled with the flesh? That he struggled to the flesh where God couldn't even answer his prayer about taking something out of his life? That he said, God, please take this out of my life. And God said, I ain't going to do it, Paul. You need this. My grace is sufficient for you. And he gave Paul the wisdom to know why. Remember? It's because of the abundance of the revelation. He said, lest I be exalted above measure. The Apostle Paul, Paul, you hadn't learned enough yet not to be proud. You still need God coming down here and giving you a a swift kick, a spank. That's the nature of the flesh in you and I. Think about that. That's the nature of the flesh in you and I. We had best adopt an attitude of holy violence against that which comes in our life to destroy us. Isaiah said, it's your sins that have separated you from God. And I would submit to you this morning, it's not only those sins that separate us for all time and eternity, but even in the life of the believer, they separate us, they hinder our fellowship. They cannot hinder our relationship, but they can and will hinder our fellowship. And that is the purpose As one guy said, that's why the devil doesn't want to destroy the church. He wants to join the church. That's what he wants to do. And we best be aware of it. Holy violence, the law of indwelling sin, but it has no authority in the life of the believer. We must yield to it. As a believer, we now have the power over it. Sin is present, but no authority. Remember that. 
lest you get discouraged in the battle. Sin causes continual conflict. You realize I'm still doing the... the okay. Sin causes continual conflict. Can't get away from it. In this world, he said, you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. But, he said, I have overcome the world. Christ doesn't intend for you to live, you and I as believers, to live in a world where there is no difficulty. He made it personal. They hated me. They'll hate you. Don't marvel when the world rises up against you. you know, in fact, if you want to be concerned, be concerned when it doesn't. <laughs> be, be concerned when there's no conflict. Be, be concerned when your friends are just as comfortable having you at their parties or whatever it is that they do as having any of their other friends. Be concerned. Because the admonition, the direction, the call is to come out and to be separate, to be separate, to be a notable, a distinctive people. The Bible uses the word peculiar. Don't tell a 15-year-old that they need to be peculiar. Okay, you, you've lost them. You're going to have to explain to them what that means, even if they're a Christian. Help them to understand that. But is it no less a challenge for us as adults? Is it no less a challenge for us who've been walking with Christ for some time? I would say to you that it's not because it takes an effort. It takes, <coughs> pardon, it takes a commitment. We have to be like Daniel. We have to purpose in our heart not to allow ourselves to be defiled. And we have to take that with us in our families, you know. You got any families as a believer that think you're a fanatic? Do you? I do. Mine tell me they live in the real world. They're going to wake up one day. They're going to wake up. We take him with us. We need grace to change us, lastly. We need grace to change us. And that's to say that it's not totally this effort, this holy violence. It's not totally focused on mining your efforts, you know. It does have a lot to do with how much we love Christ, not the church per se, not ministry per se, or any of the things that come from that. It's more specific than that. It's very clear in the Word of God. In Luke chapter 7, it's about how much we love Christ. First off, do we realize exactly what we've been saved from? Do we realize that? And does that serve to move us toward Him in all our endeavors? All our endeavors. Well, that's a lot. And the reason it's a lot is because those are the highlights <coughs> from three lessons that we went through back in June and July. Well, not long ago I had a friend, a very dear friend. Uh, he's an ordained minister. He's my friend who introduced me to the Grace to You ministry. To I'd never heard of John MacArthur. I'd never uh, de uh, delved into Reformed theology, you know, 17, 18 years ago. He and I uh, loved the Lord, and we studied together a lot. And he began sharing with me, and that began my journey, you know, personally toward Reformed theology and leaving a church uh, after 41 years at the same church and, and then being here. Uh, he's very much a part of that journey, and I finally got him to visit here. He lives off on the other end of Cobb and uh, got him over here oh, a few months ago. And uh, he, he, he's not a critical kind of guy. 
but he's, he's guy he's very astute I, I just marvel at his opinion and influence and uh, of course I was curious you know how did you enjoy our fellowship well, he enjoyed it he enjoyed the music uh, he likes ties at church you know and all that and I said oh, let's get past all that you know let's talk about some and uh, but he did share something with me he, he asked me one day he said let me ask something Mike he said your church is going great isn't it I said it's, it's great you know I, I tell him about the 80 20 thing here it's, it's flipped. You know, your typical Southern Baptist church, 20% of the people do 80% of the work and give, you know, 100% of the money sometimes. Here it's flipped. What a wonderful fellowship as far as getting things done. We're, not, we're a tabernacle right now. We have to sit up and tear down and sit up and tear down. And we've got, we've got it going on, don't we? We've got it going on. We're getting it done. Think about that. In today's society, that's a sign of a healthy church. I'm deviating a little. Let me go here. And then on Thursday morning to meet with over 30 men at 6 a.m. in the morning. Most of that's a good sign of the church. And when you have to get a broom and run people out of here because we're in somebody else's building after a, after a, a worship event because they're fellowshipping, they're ministering to each other. That's what church is about. So I'm sharing all this with him. And he very wisely said, he said, well, Mike, what do you, what do you think it would take to bring your church down? This is the way he thinks. And we got to have people like that, right? Yeah. You want them on at least one committee, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, I don't know. Uh, I said, I don't want to think about that. Right? I'm still on a honeymoon. I said, we just, I don't want to think about it. And he's uh, poking at him. And uh, he said, well, say, give me something. And I was just thinking. And he said, uh, how about arrogance in the word? I said, uh, Okay. I said, did you see some signs of that? He said, well, I'm just, I'm just telling you. Uh, I said, what do you mean? Is he talking about like the Ephesian church and all that? They went off the face of the earth because it had forgotten its first love and all that. He said, well, I'm just saying. He said, the devil is going to hit you at your weakest point. He said, talk about mortification. You know, we talk about a holy war. We talk about knowing the schemes of the devil, which I didn't share, but that's, you know, from 2 Corinthians 2.11. We are not ignorant of his devices, Paul says. So knowing all this, hey, get in the game. Do a little, do a little preemptive strike here. Where's your weakest point? And he just left that with me. So that's something we need to give to leadership, I guess, okay? And I'm confident. Our leadership is, I'm confident that our leadership is, is fully aware of that principle. They're fully aware of it because they know about the battle. I'll give you one more antidote. I remember uh, <coughs> being at a conference over at First Baptist Woodstock one year and listening to a guy preach over there and had a similar thing he was doing with a, a conversation he was having with Johnny Hunt over there. And uh, this was spoken publicly. Johnny spoke this from the pulpit, so I'll share it with you. Uh, but that preacher, which was Junior Hill, by the way, said, uh, Johnny, it's going on here for you, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of great things are happening. Yeah. Great conference, right? Yeah. I think it was a men's conference or something. Oh, it's just wonderful. What's going on? And uh, long story short, after they went through all the accolades of the church and what God was doing, uh, Junior Hill told me, he said, you know, Johnny, the devil don't care how long it takes to bring it down. He don't care how long it takes which is just to say, just a subtle reminder about, look, there is a battle going on. We, we love the mountaintop, don't we? We love the mountaintop. Hallelujah. I, I just love it when I'm 
I'm free of, of everything. I'm just at least temporarily detached from the things of the world, and I'm totally flooded with the presence of God. You know, uh, you know, kind of like the transfiguration or something. But you know, that doesn't last forever, does it? We're called back to a life of faith and practice. We're called to be wise. And that's why we take time from time to time. Even if everyone out here has been a Christian for 30 years, we stop from time to time to look at the nature of sin, the sin principle, and be reminded and, and, and dwell on the fact that we're, that we're to be sober-minded, that we're to look at the things that are going on around us and how they play out in our life, our personal lives, and even in the life of our church. This is a good thing. This draws us closer to Christ. Well, let's look specifically at sin. And if some of y'all were in, um, in uh, uh, Brother uh, Ellen's class, the men's class that broke out in the conference, uh, he kind of touched on James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But I want to look at it just briefly for the sake of our class this morning. But there James tells us, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. A person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Am I the only one who's old enough to remember a comedian named Flip Wilson? You remember what he used to say, right? The devil made me do it? Well, that's not true, okay? It's within us. We've already talked about the principle of indwelling sin and how we have to be stalwart against that. But it, is, it does represent the strategy of the flesh, as Brian Hedges calls it, because a person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own or her own desire. And it's interesting, a little word study on that word lured right there. It's the same word that's used when he's talking about catching the fish. It's talking about using bait. Specifically, it's talking about deception. Deception. I mean, how deceptive is that? A fish sees something meaty and he says, ah, food, I'm going to go get that. And what happens? And this is the nature of sin, by the way. He winds up being the food. See, and that's the exact word that's being used there. It's that kind of connotation. So we look at that. The strategy of the flesh we see in verse 14 there in the first chapter of James And then it follows with what Hedges refers to as the sequence of sin. We've got the strategy of the flesh, then we see the sequence of sin, if you will. Desire, he says in verse 15, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. See, now this this is what evil is trying to erase from our minds. That the soul that sins will die. That the wages of sin is death. You may say, well, not for me. I'm born again Christian. Listen, the wages of sin is death. If it can't have your eternal soul, it will kill something in your life. God pray it does not kill your testimony for Christ. God pray it does not kill a, a, a tremendous opportunity in your life. Pray that it does not kill, even as a believer, your reputation. 
for good and for Christ. Make sure. Heavy stuff, right? Heavy stuff. But this is what we must be mindful of. The sequence of sin. There's a desire that wells up within us because the flesh is still there. If we're not careful, sin will emerge. Sin will begin to have its way. And then James says here, when it is fully grown, it indicates to us it is a process. It's a process by which there can be some intervention a number of places along the way, along that deadly trail. But let me tell you, if you're not in the Word of God, if you're not making yourself accountable to a like-minded brother or sister that's the same sex as you are, okay, If, if you're not in the Word, if you're not in your prayer life, if you're not bringing yourself before God, opening up your heart, David said, Lord, search me. Search my heart. Know me. Try me. Have you prayed for God to put you to the test lately? Try me. See if there be anything in my life, any wicked way. That's the attitude that keeps us going straight. That's the attitude that keeps us usable in the church of Jesus Christ right here. That's the attitude. Humble submission before Him because we're aware of the nature of sin. We're aware of what's happening to us, what the intent, (coughs) pardon, of evil is in our life. Hedges, and I'll refer to him from time to time when I use his quotes here, he refers to the unholy trinity. You're probably familiar with that. He talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. The unholy trinity. That's what we fight against. The world's way. Our own flesh, which we've already said, remains remains to stir up within us difficulty if we're not careful. And even the devil himself, thankful that he can't be everywhere. But he doesn't have to be because there's still the principle of indwelling sin. What does it do? It seizes our passions, he says, and our fears. That's where it begins to work. Our passions. There's a lot that we're to be passionate about. We can be passionate about food to a degree. We can be passionate about intimacy with our spouse. We can be passionate about that. But he can take everything and make a mess of it, can he not? Nothing comes before, nothing comes before our loyalty and allegiance to the power and presence of Christ in our life. Nothing. Nothing. And the world today is is, is more about bringing Christ along bringing Him alongside us to help us experience more of the world, more of the world's things. A a deadly recipe, would you agree? We have to be in the world. We know that. Christ said that. But we are not of it. We are not of it. It seizes our passions and our fears. And then it undermines our confidence in God and His Word. We actually begin to question a few things. You see this a lot, and, and I think naturally so in the spiritual sense, in the life of a young believer. They begin the question, maybe, maybe because, particularly in today's time, the difficulty of living a Christian life, the difficulty of following Christ day in and day out, is, is far more difficult than it used to be, you know, just really a few years ago. Um, in a related example, I won't go into it greatly, but I can tell you this. I was talking to a friend back here in the back. This is the worst time in my life to be a police officer. 
the absolute worst time because of the impact of sin on our society. Not just in people committing crimes, but in the way they want the law enforced and not enforced and the attitudes on the use of, of force. We have a new directive straight, straight from the Capitol. And I don't mean the state, I mean Washington. It gives us 30, 30 best practices. You ought to read it. <coughs> it. refers to the Constitution of the United States, the standard as low bar. That's the low bar now. The low bar in determining whether or not uh, uh, deadly force is to be used. It's crazy. They say plainly, going to rewrite culture in law enforcement in the United States. They're going to make people think about law enforcement differently. It's scary. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that there don't need to be some changes. But the media sold this country a wholesale lie about what's going on in law enforcement. People think because you can see something all over the, the land that it's happening all over the land. It's not so. It's a mess. Well, maybe I should do a class on that one day. <laughs> not today. Um, they're added or they're aided by this, these uh, these uh, things that come into our life, these difficulties. Hedges says that they're aided by the allurements of this age, and it takes us back to 1 John 2.15, where he tells us plainly, don't love the world. Love not the world. Now, if we're not going to love the world and the world's way and the world's influence and all that, we first have to define what that is, do we not? And I mean personally, we need to be able to look around in our life and talk about, what is worldly and what is not, what is worthy of our pursuits and what is not. Because if we just take it tacitly, if we just uh, jump on ship with everybody else, we'll find ourselves involved in all the kinds of things that take up our time, our efforts, and keep us away from doing that which we know we should do. So don't love the world. Go to 1 John 2.15 and read that whole section that follows later on today, not now. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 is where Paul manifests this. You know, he speaks of a guy there named Demas. He gives us an example and point here. He says, Demas has forsaken me. And he tells us why. He says, he loves this present world. He loves the things of the world. It was evident to Paul. I'm sure Paul went, hey, Demas, where, where are you going, man? We got work to do. You've been faithful. You've been here. And Paul's accurate, accurate uh, deciphering of his purpose for, for leaving was that he just loved the world. He loved the things of the world. Couldn't let them go. Could not let them go. Also, our natural desire to feed the flesh at some level remains. Because as we said, and as we're going to see, as a pastor continues his preaching in Romans, we're going to see that it's still there. It's still there. We're born with it. Romans 7, 18, I'll pull one verse from that passage where Paul says, for I know that in me, and then in parentheses in your Bible, you probably see it says, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. That's what Paul says. In me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. As people who have come to Christ, as people who have experienced the new birth, we've been to that place, we've allowed. The reality in our life is that the Word of God has come to bear on our life and on our sin. We've been convicted and we've 
we've been convicted equally of who Christ is, what he did for us, his finished work. We're convinced of that. And we come with nothing. We don't come with any deals. We come saying, God, here I am. I repent. I want to turn. That is my desire. You do your work. I believe what you've done for me. I choose to go in that direction. I respond to the word of God. And the new birth is experienced. Those of us who have done that, hallelujah. But we're not off the hook. We're to live for Christ. We're to be aware of what's going on in this world. We're to be aware of what's going on in our heart, right between our ears. And as a result of that, it doesn't, it's not going to eliminate difficult. Now, it, it eliminate the difficulties that sin brings into our life, but it won't eliminate the difficulties that sin comes into our life through other people. You know, we looked at that in our conference. It won't eliminate that. We will have our share, but we're going to be so strong. We're, we're, going, to be, we're going to be an example of what Christ has done in the life of a person who has turned their heart toward him and salvation is realized. Listen, I'm halfway through. I'm going to stop. There may be an opportunity later, but we're after 10 o'clock. So let's pray and be dismissed.